Well, during Lent, the church throughout the world enters this season of preparation and reflection. Uh, we're preparing together to celebrate the resurrection at Easter time. And we do that typically by taking an honest look at the way we've been living. You know, sometimes Lent is portrayed as this somber time dominated by terms like don't or you should or you can't. It sounds like this horrible season of cliches like don't eat chocolate or in today's zeitgeist, uh, don't use plastic, which is actually a great idea. So if you want to do that for Lent, that's fantastic. But I've come to see Lent as really a, a season of good news, not of shaming and dour and can't and don't. It's a season of, of paying attention, really, to the longings that God has put in our hearts. You know, maybe, maybe you're simply longing to be closer to Jesus. Or maybe your longing is more focused on your character. Like, I, Lord, I just long to put on the character of Christ, like the fruit of the Spirit. I, I want more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. I, I want more of that. So this is a season to kind of, okay, Lord, let's work on that. Maybe you're so overburdened, distracted, hadn't really been thinking about your longings at all lately, that you just want to know what your desire is. Lord, what is it you want from me? I have good news. Good news for, know, for those who know their desperate need for the Lord in whatever shape that that takes. The good news is that just as winter is powerless over the oncoming spring, so God and, and Christ is inevitably breaking into our world. He not only rescues us from the consequences of sin at the end of our lives, he wants to rescue us from the emptiness of the distracted, apathetic, futile life that we so often get stuck living without him. This Lenten season, we're walking through a series together called Less is More. It's based on a devotional published by Renovare Press, and it's a tool to help us consider how some of the ancient practices of the church can help us get closer to Christ. We kicked off our, our series last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, and a group of us gathered early in the morning to consider the, uh, the idea of less guilt and more grace. And we focused on the, 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 the discipline of confession, how that frees our soul, how the Lord hears our confession and forgives our sin. This evening, we pick up the series, uh, Less is More, with the, the topic or the focus of less noise and more prayer, more silence, solitude, and prayer. I don't have to tell you that we live in one of the most fast-paced, noisy times and cultures of human history. I don't have to tell you that we live in a time period where we have the most ability to stay connected with technology, and yet more people than ever are suffering from isolation anxiety and loneliness than ever before in fact in 2017 the british government created a position called the minister of loneliness her name was uh, tracy crouch and she actually only lasted a year uh, it was so overwhelming the epidemic of loneliness and i i see it in our culture as well i don't have to tell you all of these things because you and i live in the same culture we live in the same place we live in a so-called connected world where we, ha we can have instant stimulus. We can have, like if you've ever taken the bus or train, you, you, can, you can see every single person watching a different movie at the same time on their smartphone. 
We, we are overstimulated, overconnected. We can communicate anytime we want, have information at our fingertips, input whenever we want it. And of course, that's all through things like social media and music and email and texts. And when we get these little, these little things, it releases dopamine, scientists say. So it's almost like a drug when somebody likes our Instagram photo or whatever it is. And I think that there's a lie attached to this overstimulation. And here's the lie at the root of it. The lie is, if I'm not on this stuff, I'm somehow going to miss out. I'm somehow going to miss out on the next best thing, on what everybody else is doing. I'm going to miss out. So this world of overstimulation is easy to fall into. We also live in a world of busyness. You know, there is nothing wrong with being productive and living a full life. But during Lent, consider the invitation to ask the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Who am I doing all of this stuff that I'm doing for? Does Jesus want me doing what I'm doing? Beneath the surface of our culture, there's a not-so-subtle lie that if you're not busy, if you're not producing, you might not have as much value as someone who is producing. There's a lie there that if you're not busy or appearing busy, that you're not as valuable as someone else. Now, I'm not here to be that guy waxing nostalgic about simpler good old days where we used to use our imaginations and play outside and walk to school in the snow. The human condition is the same as it ever was. Overstimulation with technology and busyness are just the new drugs for the same age-old human problem. And what is the problem? I think it's a problem of intimacy. Our fast-paced lives train us to have lots of points of contact, but at the expense of intimacy and depth. If we want to have deep relationships, we need to slow down and listen more than we contribute, more than we talk, more than we put out. We need to reflect on what has happened just as much as we think about what's happening next. Consider the most meaningful relationships in your life. Maybe your spouse or your best friend, your parents or your kids. If you only related to those people who are dearest to you with texting or posting on Twitter, if you only reacted in between events, like on your way to the next thing, you wouldn't have a very strong relationship. And some of you might be thinking, you're right, I don't, because that's how I'm doing this. How can we expect to grow closer to God? Right? Those are human relationships where we actually see people, where they're actually physically in our life. We can hear their voices audibly all the time. How can we expect to grow closer to God if we don't also slow down to be with him? I'm not talking about just like getting through a scripture reading or just going to church or just even praying a list of prayers. I'm talking about just shutting up and being with him. How are we supposed to get close to him if we don't do those things? Thankfully, the scriptures can help us. There are so many passages about slowing down and being with the Lord, but I've chosen Psalm 62 to be our guiding text this evening, partly because I'm your preacher, and right now Psalm 62 has been speaking to me, so I thought it'd be a good one to share from, personal experience. 
And I think I'll share it with you now. So if you're able to stand, go ahead and do so. We're going to be looking at Psalm 62. And I'll just read it. It's 12 verses long. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you? Like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. They've counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. My soul, wait in silence for God only. My hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only a vanity, and men of rank are a lie. And the balances, they go up. They're together, lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression, and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, don't set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord. For you will repay a person according to their work. Lord, we thank you for your servant, David. And we thank you for the scripture writers recording all of his life so that we don't idolize him. We know that he was a fallen person. But we thank you for this reflection of his that invites us to a deeper, more intimate walk with you. And so, Spirit of God, I pray as we unpack this psalm a little bit that you would invite us and reveal to us what the Lord is saying. Amen. You may be seated. So this psalm is attributed to King David, and it was likely written at a time in his life when, like many of us, he was feeling overextended, caught up in more than he could handle, and desperate for help. Anyone ever feel like that? Every new parent should raise their hand. Uh, <laughs> David may not have had a smartphone or an Instagram account, but he did have other kinds of enemies that kept him up at night, that distracted him. Early in his career, even before he became king, there was people who tried to stop him from being king. Once he was king, there was all kinds of people that were trying to kill him and keep him from staying king. And the worst of the worst was that he was betrayed on multiple occasions by people in his inner circle. One time, he was even betrayed by his own son. So David is feeling not only under attack by spiritual or physical enemies, but probably also disoriented emotionally by the betrayal of someone close to him. You know, it hurts bad enough when you get fired from a job or when a relationship breaks down. It hurts even worse when you've been betrayed by someone that you had trusted. When you're under pressure, what is the first thing that you do? Like when a deadline is approaching, 
students, you could probably relate to this too. When a deadline is approaching or when something stressful comes up, how do you handle it? Why don't you turn to your neighbor and just say, how do you typically handle a deadline or a stress thing? Literally have 30 seconds. All right, you've got a big project at work coming up or a final assignment or some kind of big life transition coming up. How do you typically just shout out some of the ways that you, you handle that? Coffee. Coffee. Yep, for sure. Separation. Separation. What, what do you mean by that? Okay, then come back to it kind of thing? Okay. So we got... Oh, there you go, brother. See, you're seeing what a lot of people are thinking. Half the room. <laughs> What's that? Drawing. Okay, drawing. Drawing. Yes, you're an artist. I remember that. Obsess about it. Obsess about it. Yeah. Some people call that worry, but. <laughs> yeah, and the words are, well, Jen Milson is sick today, but she would have said checklist. And I know there's some checklist people out there, right? Uh, when polled, sociologists kind of look at this type of question, and the two main responses are the Greg way, the, uh, the procrastination, which I know a lot of us uh, do that one, and then there's the checklist way, like, all right, give me a problem, I've got solutions, I'm just going to start picking, at, picking away at it, right? Now, David is definitely a guy who's capable of, of these options. Part of his story includes this gross distraction, this procrastination. There's a period in his life when he decides he doesn't want to go out to war, and so now he's bored, and so he's procrastinating. He's looking across his rooftop to this beautiful woman who's bathing. No harm in noticing that someone is beautiful. The harm is when he keeps going back and watching more and more and more, and then he has this illicit relationship with Bathsheba, a married woman. That's a problem. That's a distraction. And David is definitely a guy who could do the checklist thing. I mean, he's smart. He's capable. He's, he's a, you know, a, a capable warrior. So if he's got enemies, I mean, the, this is a guy that defeated Goliath when he was a kid with a slingshot. He's got this band of faithful, famous warriors called uh, the Mighty Men of Valor. And the Bible talks about all their exploits. And now they're, you know, one dude killed 800 guys with a spear. I mean, he's got some, some serious ninjas and stuff on his team. And together, they toppled all these armies and these overcoming, uh, these massive odds. So David is a guy who knows how to procrastinate. He's also a guy who knows how to get things done. There were lots of things going wrong in David's life, but give the man his due, because Psalm 62 is an example of how to do things very right when you're under stress and pressure. In brief, Psalm 62 is an example of trusting God more than our own strength. The psalm is broken up into three main sections, so if you're a note taker and you're looking for the nerdy stuff, you can write three main sections. Each section has four verses in it, so one through four, right, is the first section, and I'm going to approach the text in two ways. The first way is I'm going to just look at some of the words in there and some of the phrasing and the order and try and explain a little bit about what the text means. The second way, and this is what I want to offer you this evening, is I found Psalm 62 to be an avenue into silent prayer with the Lord. And so that's the second way I want to look at it. I want to offer it to you as a way that you can enter into silence and solitude into prayer through Psalm 62. 
The psalm opens with the line, my soul waits in silence for God only. If you've got your own Bible, I wouldn't recommend marking in the pew Bible, but if you've got your own Bible, you can underline the word only. Uh, NIV might have alone, but that is a word ach in Hebrew. That's a fun one. It clears your throat too if you've got a cold. Uh, and that, is the, that, that word occurs five times in this psalm. And every time, here's a fun fact, every time that that word occurs in Hebrew, which is the language it was written in, it's always in the beginning of the sentence, which makes for a really weird sentence, except for psalms or poems. And you know how even in English poetry, we can do funny things with phrases and we can mix words around to make a point. So the psalmist is making a point by putting that word first. And so um, what a challenging opening. In my flesh, the last thing I want to do when I have a lot to do, the last thing I want to do is nothing. The last thing my body wants me to do, this is my way of getting things done, is to slow down. It does not want me to do that. Everything in me, every ounce of years that I've been alive has trained me to get going, to get moving, to get busier. When I'm under stress, my brain and my body and my muscle memory say, get to work. And I'm sure David had some of the same urges, but David has come to understand that being silent and still before the living God is not doing nothing. Oh, as an American, whew, we need to, I'm going to say it again. David has come to understand that being silent and still before the living God is not doing nothing. In fact, prayer and silence and solitude with God is about the most practical thing we can do. So that word only occurs five times, right? In the 12 verses. It occurs at the beginning of the sentence. And I want you to, to, sentence one, verse one, I want to read it in a literal translation. Only in God does my soul wait, or as Robert Alter translated it, only in God is my being quiet. Okay? So this isn't just meditation without God. This isn't just pulling away to be still. That's good for us. But this is being still in the midst of a crisis with God. That makes the difference. Only in God is my being quiet. David has come to see that in all of his striving, in all of his impressive abilities, those things can only take him so far. If he's going to get more done than merely survive, if he's going to thrive and have a living relationship with God, then he's going to have to trust him. He's going to have to trust that in the midst of a stressful season, when it seems logical to skip prayer and to get more things done on the checklist, the most needful thing is to actually slow down and to be with God first. Verse 2 in Hebrew starts again with the word only. Only he is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be greatly shaken. This is a confession of sorts. David has lots of things that he could consider rocks of salvation in his life. I mean, I just thought of the rocks in his uh, you know, sling pouch, right? Um, he was good looking. That's something he could rely upon. He was a crazy skilled warrior right? Like he could rely on that strength. He was wealthy. He could rely on that strength. He was smart. That was a singer-songwriter and probably had a fan club and everything. No, he, he could rely on a lot of these skills that he had. 
And in a similar way, as I look around this room and see a lot of talented, lovely people, um, you have rocks that you can rely upon that aren't necessarily just God. But what this psalm helps us to do is to confess that in reality, God is my rock, my one and only, and only he can really deliver us, and only he can actually save us. And if we have any good thing, any other rocks in our pocket, any other skills and abilities, they're from him. And so the first two verses help us to quiet our souls. And to realign any false beliefs we might have going into prayer about our own self-sufficiency. This isn't an exercise to make yourself feel bad. It's an invitation to think more highly about God who makes you possible. Now, how many of you have tried silence and solitude in your life? Silence and solitude. It's where you pull away, you try and get away from people. Silent prayer, right? What happens when you try and do that? <laughs> Your last time, anyway. We get distracted, don't we? Oh, it's crazy, right? Like, first of all, my phone. Like, I literally cannot pray. I, not even regular prayer. Uh, I, I, I have to put my phone in another room. I'm not the guy that can read my Bible on the phone because I, I'm not, I don't have the willpower to not look at other stuff, okay? So sometimes there's just stuff you have to do to separate yourself. Um, maybe you're stronger will than I, but, but that's one of the distractions. And then, okay, Lord, I'm just going to light my candle, and I've got my chair, and everyone's asleep in the house because I'm up early. Do my breathing, got my feet on the floor like they say. Okay. Flying monkeys would be weird. <laughs> okay, then, okay. All right, Lord, just take that away, the conveyor belt or whatever. Okay, all right. Now I'm, oh, you know what? Corey really wanted me to get milk today. I'm going to just write that down. Okay. Back in there. I wonder when the new Star Wars trailer is going to come out. Can't wait to see that, Lord. That is such a... You know what I'm talking about? Flying monkeys and Star Wars and all of this, and then your stomach starts rumbling, and then crazy thoughts coming. And, you just, and here's, here's the tendency. Well, my love language isn't contemplative prayer. Or, I'm no good at this. Let, let me just, nobody's good at this. Like, when you read the spiritual giants, you know, like, Teresa of Avila and, you know, St. John of the Cross, when you actually read what they write about themselves, they're always talking about how bad at prayer they are. In fact, the more advanced someone is in the contemplative life, the more you're likely to hear things like, I'm just a novice. St. Matthew the Poor is one of these guys that just is always saying, I'm just a novice. And you're like, you blow me away in prayer. The idea isn't that you are going to love it and that you're going to be good at it. But here's, what, here's one of the other things that all of the spiritual classic writers that we look up to will say. It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. It deepens our relationship with the Lord. It forms our inner character in a way that doesn't happen with just Bible studies, doesn't happen with just church services, and doesn't happen with just service. Now, if you live a Christian life and you're not studying the Bible and you're not part of a worshiping community and you're not serving the Lord and serving your community, you, you also have a truncated Christian life. So don't hear me saying that those things aren't important. But what I am also saying is that there's stuff that happens in your soul 
deep work that Jesus seems to only choose to do when we're still with him and when we're not talking. And it's, it's a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson talks about. And it's, it's the type of thing, if we're talking about Aspen and her, her roots going deep, it's the type of thing that you don't see results in a week and you don't see results oftentimes in a month or two months. But you look back over the weeks and months and years and you say, I'm a deeper, I have a deeper soul than I used to. And you don't get that from skimming across the water from Bible study to Bible study or reading the Bible once a year kind of thing. This is the deep work of Christ. So what do we do when these distractions come? And they come every time. David helps us in verses 3 and 4. He shows us one way to, to deal with them is to let them out for a little bit. Just a little bit. Let them out. He gets his fears out, his anger, his, his feelings of oppression. He, he expresses them. Instead of stuffing it back down, he, he makes it part of his prayer. David describes himself as feeling like a tottering fence in the windstorm. I had a part of my fence go down, and other parts were just kind of left like this. And he describes his enemies as being in a higher position than him, and like they want to just push him down. If you've ever just felt like at your last breath, like, man, if they just pushed on me the wrong way, I would go over. And he's expressing that feeling to the Lord. And maybe you, you know, have expressed this weariness in your life, Lord, I just feel like if one more thing happens, I'm going down. And it's okay to say that in prayer. And David encourages this in, in Psalm 62. He expresses anger. It's okay to express anger in prayer. Not just anger at people. You can express anger in, in God. You can say, I'm mad that I'm going through this. I don't know if I should be mad. I don't know how to feel. But being honest is an invitation in, into prayer. And then David talks about his betrayal. They bless me with their mouth but inwardly they curse. You know, they're two-faced, these people in my life. And so he gets all this venom out, and then you may see in the margin of your Bible the word after, after verse 4, selah, selah, which many scholars think means some kind of musical interlude or an invitation to pause and reflect. And if you work through this psalm as a guide to silent prayer, this is a great place to just stop and to voice your distraction. Even the flying monkeys, and the Star Wars, even the goofy, the weird stuff to say, God, I don't want this in my mind right now. But also those to-do lists and the stressors and the pain and all that, you can get it out at this point. And you can pause as long as you like or as long as your, your kids will let, you, will let you pause. Now, like a spiritual guide, David doesn't leave us focused on our problems. He doesn't leave us at verse 4. Notice that in verse 5, the beginning of the second section, he repeats verse 1 almost verbatim, only God does my soul wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Only he is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. As you know, just a couple of days ago, we put on this dinner auction fundraiser for the Mexico team, it was amazing, and the whole process took months to plan. It took dozens and dozens of people working together to pull it off, and don't we have a fantastic team of capable, creative, strong leaders, men and women, boys and girls who came together, yes, experienced, talented, willing to serve, and in the few days leading up to this event, 
we started to meet with some major resistance. Like, first of all, we lost one of our key presenters to the flu, whole family down, boom. Then some other people got sick and we had to fill in the gaps. And then the day of, we learned that all three of, of Patrick and Adelaide's kids were throwing up in the morning, that there's snow on the ground, so we were unsure, would we be able to get to, to Seattle to get the food? And then Ryan Leckie's mom breaks her, her wrist that day. She was going to be childcare for the family. And so all of this stuff starts to happen. And it got ridiculous to the point of, this is real spiritual resistance, you know? And, and you're kind of at a point now, like, we're kind of done laughing at all this. Because we could really just get stressed out and start pulling our hair out. We could, we could have just powered through and tried to work harder. But that morning, I was practicing this, turning on the silence and solitude gear again, because I knew I'd be preaching on it, and I always like to actually try and do the things I'm preaching on. And so I'm practicing this, and then I get done with my quiet, and almost comically after this, Silence and solitude with the Lord. I'm getting phone calls and texts and people dropping like flies and all this crap is happening. And, you know, later in the day when everything felt like it was going sideways, I just had this great sense of peace. And, and I was able to see, and, and the other people on the team saw the same thing, that, hey, you know what this resistance probably means? Probably means we're doing the right thing. And it probably means someone doesn't want us to be successful here and let's just pray all the more and let's just come together i think the lord has got us and if you were at that event not only did we i mean you can hear about the numbers we raise good money and all that kind of stuff but there was a spirit in that room it was just a it was a fun evening it was a joyful evening it was a generous evening um it was fantastic and i think that the lord showed us that he is our rock that he is our salvation that he makes this happen more than we could have done in our very capable strength. And I think in a similar way, David has come to grips that God is bigger than his enemies. No longer is there any battling with distractions or worry about his enemies in his prayer. Now he's come to a deeper level, a settled place in his soul. In fact, he's so convinced of God's goodness and faithfulness, power and salvation, that he encourages others to trust. If you notice, there's a turn now. He's not just talking to God. He's saying, hey, all you people, trust in the Lord. He's really good. He's really trustworthy. And if you choose to pray through this psalm as an invitation to silent prayer, you can follow David on that progression. You can take this section, this middle section, to pour your heart out to him, to be still with him, during that second sila, which is at verse 8. And this is where the deep undoing of our false saviors happens. You have to understand that we are incredibly good at protecting the status quo in our lives. Your body, your appetites, your thoughts, your feelings, your actions are all trying to keep you where you are at. They're not bad. It's just how we're designed. We don't like to change. We feel unsettled when we change. And so it's like all of those things, thoughts, feelings, actions, bodies, habits, all of those things, appetites, they're all on the same team sort of working against us, breaking free and growing. 
But when we come before Jesus in silence and solitude, he is going to speak to us. And he does that work of transformation. See, I don't think we distract ourselves or self-medicate ourselves or overcommit ourselves just because like we're bad at time management. I don't think that's the main reason. I think we're afraid to change because it means changing a whole system. I think, and I'll just say this about me and you can agree or disagree if it's about yourself. I think we're afraid to enter into our own pain and suffering. And I think we're afraid to be gentle with ourselves. It's easier for me to be hard on myself and to just work harder than it is to receive the grace of the Lord. We're afraid that if we allow God to speak, we may not like what he says. And that's why there's so much resistance so much resistance that it's hard to sit still. But if we sit still with the Lord long enough, if we allow him to speak and reveal the reality of our lives, we'll gain that life-giving perspective. And that's, that's what David helps us to see in the third part of the psalm. He comes to understand that the people who seem like they're on top of the world, the ones whose only source of salvation isn't God, but it's their power or their wealth or their influence or fame, David comes to see that they're in the same boat as the inconsequential who also don't have God, that if you put their lives on scales, they're both even and they're both about this heavy as breath, he says. When we're alone with the Lord, like David, we'll come to see that the things we thought were so important in life, the things that, that keep us so busy and yet so lifeless, aren't really giving life in the first place. So, if you choose to follow the road of Psalm 62 into silence and solitude so you can hear the Lord, it will cost you. And, you know, as I look around the room and as I think of my own life, we're all people with pretty full schedules. They're filled with different things, but there are schedules. And we can't just add 10 or 15 minutes of silent prayer into a day that's already full, right? We have to make room by saying no to something else. Think of it this way. We've been given a gift. The Lord is inviting us into his life. He saved us through sin by his work on the cross. He saved us from death by his resurrection. He ministers in and through us through his Holy Spirit. And this season is an opportunity for us who have made ourselves too busy to hear him to connect and to heal, and to become more whole. I invite you to join me in that invitation through Psalm 62 or through another avenue to come to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you that there's so much more to salvation, to following you, than just a transaction, than just a, a future. Um, as wonderful as forgiveness is, as wonderful as eternal life will be, I thank you that you also desperately care about us now and invite us into a deep life. You invite us into the life of God. Lord, 
Lord, you know each one of us. You know our schedules. You know our, our, our resistance to slowing down. You know the ones who would love the idea of slowing down, but for whatever reason, there's just always something more. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to reach out, that you would draw my sisters and brothers and myself into that life-giving relationship with you. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust that when we invest 10, 15 minutes of silence and solitude, it is time better spent than 10 or 15 more minutes working um, underslept and overstimulated anyway on some other project. Lord, help, help us not to just trust you in theory for something that's going to happen after we die, but to trust you in our flesh, to trust you in our actions by growing in relationship with you. Bless you.